Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of the Ahmed Khan podcast. Today I'm joined by Sister Abida Ahmed, who is the founder of Amana Counseling, and she has been serving as a Muslim counselor for the last 15 years. Also, she specializes, she's also a sex addiction therapist who works with Muslim clients. And this is particularly relevant to today where our topic is going to be around pornography. Um, I wanted to thank you for joining us, sister. Alhamdulillah. Thank you for having me. Alhamdulillah. For those who know me, they know I am, um, I, I am a huge advocate for, for beginning discussions on pornography in our Muslim community. Because as somebody who works with many of the youth, um, I can see it in their face when they tell me how, how big of a problem this is. We have Muslims in, unfortunately, in elementary schools, in high schools, in universities, and those who are married who are really struggling with this addiction. Because not yeah. only is this a Muslim problem, but this is a global problem. And so I timed this right before Ramadan because I know that for, I've, had, I've heard many stories of people who've left their addictions, particularly their pornography ones, in the month of Ramadan. So... Inshallah, we will, me and Sister Abida will have, inshallah, a beautiful discussion on the matter and inshallah leave with some tangible solutions for how to remove this addiction in Ramadan. So I wanted to begin by asking you, Sister Abida, how big of a problem is this in our communities? Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Jazakallah khair for inviting me to have this discussion. Um, uh, the fact that I, a hijabi Muslima, a practicing Muslima, is um, is doing what I'm doing is I, I think that's the testament that it is quite a big big issue, and um, I think in the last ten years or so, what I noticed in my private practice, which is coming up to almost twenty years now, um, is that this was coming in as a presentation in a lot of my uh, couple couples work because I'm I'm also a relationship therapist, so that forms the bulk of my work and it because of the nature of the issue obviously people would be suffering in silence you know married couple for 10 20 years and they wouldn't know how to address this because obviously there's a lot of stigma and a lot of shame associated to this issue so it definitely is a big problem not just muslims li living in the west but also muslims across the the muslim countries so two years ago I, I went to um, to Pakistan and I did, before going to Pakistan, um, I did some research and subhanAllah, you know, countries like Egypt, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, when you when you look at their, um, just Google search history, for instance, and it was just, just shocking that pornography search in the search engines was topping up for these countries. Um, and when I was in Pakistan, I had the privilege to, to go to several universities and speak to people. And when I was going, people were actually quite skeptical and they were saying, would you be, would people be okay about you talking about such a difficult topic? But Spanala, I think everybody recognizes this is a problem and um, it's, it, it doesn't discriminate. So it's not just, as you said, it's not just a, it's a, it's a global problem. And it's not just a problem for men, Muslim men, unfortunately, it is problem for some Muslim women as well. Hmm. And, and Sister Abida, there's, unfortunately, we have many parents in our community who are, especially older parents, who are in complete denial about this topic. 
and just they, they believe that just because their children are Muslim, there's no way that their children would be doing this because they would have known by now. Um, do, you mind, do you mind expanding upon this idea? So I, I totally agree with you that it on the surface, obviously, people can assume as we, we, we want to have Husnism, we want to believe the best for our children mm. or people that we're surrounded with. But the problem is that we live in such a highly sexualized society um, and the nature of uh, pornography is such that it it isn't something that is um, that you need to go somewhere now. Back in the days, it used to be things that you know people used to say that it would be magazines or you know DVDs or back in the days all that. But nowadays, uh, the accessibility is so easy. Um, so the the fact that it's accessible, free, and you have um, any time of the day, twenty four hours. And you could be, and you could stay anonymous, right? So the fact that you can be in your bedroom, young boys, young girls can be in their bedroom. They don't have to pay anything. They can just be on their phones or whatever. Um, and the way, the problem with this addiction is that it can fester in secrecy. Now with any um, chemically induced addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol, it alters our behavior in a way that people can tell, right? But with pornography addiction and sex addiction, it just festers in silence so people don't know. And that's my experience. I mean, I've worked with people in their 60s that, that started the addiction when they were in their late teens or early teens. Um, and they would be doing other things like, you know, subhanAllah, successful uh, careers and spiritually grounded people. But obviously addiction is not a choice, it's a compulsion. So, um, yeah, so I think it's just way more complicated than people would like to under, uh, believe at the surface. Mm -hmm. And there, there's also this other idea, particularly in, uh, in the males in my age group, that, if you, that once you get married, this addiction is going to go away. Um, but clearly, and I think from reading your article on Muslim Matters, we can find that this argument is debunked, correct? Definitely. Now, the thing is that because it's not a... It, it's not, now the main, main definition is it's not what you want, it becomes what you need. So there is that element of dependency. Um, and people think that once you are in a relationship, probably once, you, once you're, uh, you're intimate with your spouse and your needs are met, your sexual needs are met, maybe you won't want to be looking at pornography anymore, but it's the dependency so it's the dopamine that you get by watching. And for, for people, it's not so easy to to and, and the most important thing is that obviously the way the neuroscience works, the neural pathways are so fixed in the way that they've developed over the last 10 years, five years, two years, whatever that person has spent in that addiction, that it's not so easy to just come away from it just because you're in a committed relationship. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could, if you could perhaps share a profound story that you had with one of your one of your clients um, who was older that that struggled with this addiction. Subhanallah, there are so many stories. You know, there are so many stories, and um, almost all of those stories for me they're profound. Because uh, can you still hear me? Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, alhamdulillah. So the one that comes to mind is um, a, a young brother who was uh, in his mid-30s, subhanAllah, and he was um, a, a really successful successful um, in his business, mashallah, with three children. He spent several years um, 
in a Muslim country studying Islam as well. So he was spiritually quite knowledgeable and grounded. Um, and his addiction started for him when he was probably in his mid, mid teens. So about 15, 16, that kind of age. And it's kind of stayed with him throughout his college, university, uh, when he went abroad to study, when he got married, when he had children. So by the time he came to me, it was, I, I think he, he, he had that for, for about good 15 years or so. Um, and the, the fact that he could coexist, you know, he was doing everything else, but this was his uh, dark thing, which he was struggling every single day. You know, he, every single day, he would make that intention that, you know, I, I just don't want to do it. And he was, there was absolutely no way that he was endorsing it or he was accepting it. So it's, complete struggle, mujahida every single day. Um, but alhamdulillah, you know, once you start working on it, because there, there, is a, there is a way that you obviously work your way out of it. So alhamdulillah, once we accept and acknowledge that there's a problem, because with a lot of people, what they tend to do is they want, they minimize it. So minimization is one of the cognitive distortions that people have that, you know, it's, it's not a big deal, or I'm not, I'm not actually, I'm not committing zina, or I'm not harming anybody, or do you understand? So the minimization is one of the things that people do to just cope with it, basically. So yeah, so that, that was, subhanAllah, very difficult to witness, because um, um, that brother, like I said, that brother was struggling a lot. Mm. Subhanallah. And, um, you know, you know, th there is this false idea that um, pornography does not hurt you. This, I mean, this is what many people who are addicted to it claim to almost kind of justify it, that I'm not necessarily harming anybody. But when we look at the research, we find that it is harming them. We know that when we know that when an individual continues to consume uh, pornographic material, the neuroplasticity of their brain begins to physically change. So they are physically becoming different people. Um, and there's a myriad of other problems associated. But uh, I think that story from, uh, from that brother is quite profound. Um, your specialty is in working with women, um, particularly spouses on this topic. Um, in your estimation, how, how difficult is this problem for some of these women whose husbands are addicted to it? And how are they able to cope with such, a, with such a problem? Because I know you mentioned that when, for example, a woman catches her husband watching this, she begins to lose her trust. She begins to lose her respect. And with that, inevitably, the marriage begins to decline. I was wondering if you could comment on that. So I, th I think um, in relationships, obviously, that's probably, and I, I do believe that it's one of the saddest things for me is to when we start working with the with couples where they where the disclosure has just happened so and for the for the wife obviously if she had no idea then that sudden kind of disclosure is very very painful and women often say that you know uh, we wish it was something else or we would have coped better if it was alcohol or cocaine or something else it's just this is just totally not because most people see this as a as a moral crisis and a spiritual crisis and obviously lack of trust and, and it, straight away for women it becomes a, a question that they often ask is you know what is lacking in me that my husband is gravitating towards pornography um, so they lose their confidence and it just obviously becomes very 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 sad and tricky 
Um, but subhanAllah, you know, the amazing thing is that re relationships where people are proactive um, and the foundation of the relationship is good, then uh, pe people find find ways of rebuilding trust, you know, and, and there are things that we do in therapy in terms of giving them tools and structures and kind of gradually building and uh, working on managing managing the the trauma because obviously the the disclosure brings a lot of trauma um, and it's definitely very hard for the women but the the minute they understand because the thing is that for me I um, from my Islamic understanding I don't see this as a as a disease of the heart now I know that people might find this very shocking because obviously we know that zina of the eyes is just as bad and it's it's hugely problematic. So I'm not endorsing this, but for me, I feel that the fact that um, for almost everybody that I've ever worked with, they, they struggle. So it's not something um, that they are happy about or they're content about, or they minimize it in the sense that they don't want to work on it. And Ahmed, the saddest thing is that almost 95% people that I've ever worked with are, are adults who are survivors of childhood sexual abuse or childhood trauma, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, all sorts of things. So that means that these, these people from a young age were exposed to, to, to things that were really horrendous and horrific. Um, and this is, we, what we define this is like any other addiction, it's a anesthetizing tool so, um, so they're trying to try to cope with uh, whatever trauma they've gone through or whatever. So, like I said, for me, I don't see this as a spiritual crisis. So, alhamdulillah, I, I, I feel that, you know, people definitely go through hell to get, get to the other end. But alhamdulillah, if they're persistent and if, if they work hard on it, alhamdulillah, the recovery is really good, mashallah. Subhanallah, I never knew that um, in all of my anecdotal um, research and also my empirical research, I never came across anything like that. So subhanAllah, that's, that's eye-opening seeing that trauma, um, particularly in childhood, is, is, a, is, a, is a significant reason why people are using this to cope with their problems. Uh, you mentioned this idea that it's not a spiritual problem. Uh, I wanted to ask you because, because in Islam, we have the three stages of the nafs. We have the nafs al-ammara, which is the nafs, the self that has basically become a slave to its own self and is openly transgressing itself and following its desires, which is kind of like the lowest level. Then we have the nafs al-lawama bisu, which is what you're talking about, is when the person is struggling with their self. They're in that, they're, they're in that battle where they want to get to the other end, but they keep failing, but they keep getting up and trying again. And then we have the highest stage, which is the nafs al-mutama'inna, which is the tranquil soul that has conquered itself. Um, mm. But from my experience, um, and I work with I work with teenagers, I work with people my age, so in the mid twenties and a little bit older. Um, and and with these individuals, I'm not really finding anything uh, like a childhood trauma that at least I can trace. So I'm wondering if it's really a combination between the two, or is it just that um, in your experience, the worst cases are the ones who do have that trauma. So that's an interesting point. So we normally say that there are three things. So there are three ways that people can get hooked onto this or they would are more vulnerable 
towards addiction. So the first is opportunity induced. So from a very young age, let's say 10 or eight or 12, a child is exposed to pornography. Um, and that exposure means the minute they watch something, obviously there is that sur a surge of dopamine. And if they do that a few times, then obviously that the, the whole thing is exciting for your young, young brains. And then that's how they get hooked because of the opportunity, right? So that, that's the first element. The second element is attachment induced. So attachment induced means that if there was uh, attachment wound from their childhood, which is a relational uh, kind of trauma, whether they've had difficult relationships with their, their primary caregivers, mom or dad. And the third one is trauma induced, which is like abuse of any sort, whether it's sexual abuse or um, emotional abuse or physical abuse. So, and it could be any three. So it could be opportunity, and then it could be a bit of attachment problem, whether it's even stuff like being bullied at school, for instance, or seeing mom and dad having a, a crisis or generally kind of have, and, and trauma, don't forget, Ahmed, trauma is not always big things, you know, trauma, when we define trauma, it doesn't always have to be, God forbid, I mean, may Allah protect us all, but it's not always about sexual abuse, physical abuse, or being in a war-torn zone, not all that. It could be a one-off something, really. And, and it's about how we respond to a difficult situation. And sometimes people are exposed to difficult situations, but their network around them in terms of how people contain them and nurture them, they can recover from trauma. But sometimes because of the lack of um, nurturing around the person, a little thing, uh, what we refer to small t traumas, they can have a profound impact. So trauma is actually how, what happens to us when we ex expose to a traumatic event. So people that you've come across, maybe they were, they, their addiction is more about opportunity induced. Mm -hmm. And like I said, the accessibility and the frequency of doing something means that your brain gets hooked onto the dopamine surge and they don't have a balance because don't forget that uh, what our brain needs is different type of hormones. So we need dopamine, serotonin, you know, oxytocin, all different types of happy hormones to feel excited, to feel content, to feel loved, all those emotions. But if this is the only go-to coping strategy or mechanism, uh, then you might often know that people who are hooked to pornography, you know, their, their social life becomes up and down. And especially in relationships, for instance, there is a huge presentation of something called ED, which is um, use ED, which is um, erectile dysfunction. So in, in relationships, for instance, men then struggle to uh, have intimacy with their spouses. And it's a big problem. So subhanAllah, there, there are so many things that people struggle with once they are um, addicted to pornography or sex addiction as well. Then that answers my question, Sister Rita. The idea that there are some who just take the opportunity um, because of the accessibility. And then uh, on the other hand, you have people who, who are missing that attachment and th they use something like this to cope um, with some of their problems. And looking at many of the peers in my circle, I can see that opportunity is what's causing them to do it. And the, the disturbing thing, the, the, the most disturbing thing, Sister Rita, is we're having Muslims in elementary school really struggle with this issue. Um, yeah. Across the board, I've seen testimonies from Canada, uh, from our own community, from the, from the United States of Muslim kids in grade six or seven um, watching this during school time. And 
from mm-hmm. my experience, the, 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 the Muslim students or just students in high school in particular are in the worst situation because in, in, in that high school environment, it's almost seen as the norm. And the way it's, been, it, it's being discussed, it's as if, if you're not doing it, you're uncool. Um, mm. So this is, uh, this is very disturbing. And um, I was wondering, do you, from your experience, have you been dealing with teenagers or even people younger than them? Definitely. So um, I think a few years ago, we had a we had a study that came out from uh, one of our London universities, which according to which 75% of 14 year olds would have been exposed to pornographic material 75%. So that is kind of endorses what you're saying that it's almost, um, it's almost seen as a mandatory thing that you you should be as opposed to, you know, it's a it's a negative thing. So it's almost like you said that you're uncool if you don't and it's not just that now in terms of defining what what pornography is now we know that I mean that when I was doing my research initially one of the things that we picked up on was um, the the series on Netflix uh, Game of Thrones for instance so the Game of Thrones there are it's just I mean obviously male protect us it's just that so many things which we classify as soft porn. So that is something that parents won't even recognize that it's a problem because it's on Netflix. It's a network that people prescribe to, right? So, so the fact is that people are, the children, young children are desensitized. So their threshold in terms of um, thinking what is appropriate, what's not appropriate, is just obviously challenged greatly. So no wonder young children are struggling. Um, and I think the thing is that we're not really, like I said, this is a, this is a means of uh, accessing dopamine. But what we're doing with young children is that they're not really accessing a lot of other things, for instance, healthy activities to counter this. Mm. And when we talk about, inshallah, I'm sure you'll ask about treatment and how do people recover mm-hmm. in the recovery program, inshallah, I'll talk about that more, inshallah, in a bit. Yeah, and uh, you know, P- Pamela Paul wrote a book called Pornified, in which she argued that we have become a pornified our our species. One second, our our our, our species has become a pornified species, and you know whether it's in our music videos, whether it's in our TV shows, whether it's on the billboards on the street, but everywhere you look, it 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 has become a pornified culture, and so. Yeah. What's happening with the youth is because they're they're put in this environment. It seems like it's the norm, and I I, I love the fact that you mentioned this idea of soft porn, because you're you're absolutely correct that parents nowadays they see um they, they you know our parents you know they watch some of these TVs or whatever movies you watch you're not gonna find a movie without a porn scene in it unfortunately, uh, which is one reason why Earth for Gold is so popular. Is because you yeah. can actually watch it with the family, um, but what what one of the most disturbing things in my research on this topic is that as our society has created some a somewhat of a soft porn, it's also created the road to hard porn, and now we're beginning to see more disgusting avenues, um, and uh, this is this is becoming very disturbing. As somebody who has brothers, as somebody who who has, uh, inshallah, will have children, is how are we going to how are we going to solve these problems? Because it's very clear to almost everyone 
that there are harms associated with this, that this is not a positive act at all, but what are some tangible solutions that we can offer? Um, what are some healthy alternatives that we can offer to our children, um, to our adults, to our parents, to everybody who is struggling with this problem? SubhanAllah. So I, th I think the most important thing is recognizing that this is a problem. Like you started off saying that our community can sometimes be in a denial that we look down upon people and think that's a problem that the West has or other people are. We, we are just above and beyond these problems. So I think acknowledging that it's a, it's a global pandemic, um, I think that's the first thing. And it's so important to engage with these discussions with our children from, from a very young age. And this leads on to the most important thing, which is about how we talk about sex education and relationships with our children from a very young age. And that's also a topic which I think as Muslims, we still, we still grapple with, we, we struggle to, because we don't feel that we have the right language or the right uh, concepts in terms of how do we open these uh, conversations. So one of the things that I do a lot for the community is that um, we talk about how do we have those discussions with young children, basically, you know, as young as five, six years old, you know, and it's never to like, I feel that it's never too early. It's never too late. That kind of, that's my approach. And there is a really good concept of, that we refer to a lot, which is the concept of protective behaviors. Um, and the, the concept of protective behaviors with children is how do we teach children to keep themselves safe and make sure that others are safe. So the concept of safety, obviously as, as Muslims, we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to be safe and look after our own self-esteem and ourselves and be uh, be a source of safety and sakina for other people. So education and knowledge is so important. And, and with children, because the thing is that this whole industry is not, we know for sure that there is so much exploitation um, behind this uh, industry, their mental health issues, exploitation of all sorts, you know, it's slavery, sex slavery, all sorts of problematic issues. And, and, and like I said, if we have those open discussions from a young age with our children, um, then we are equip, equipping them. So one of the things that we do in them, when we do these, um, these workshops, we say that what should parents do if children are, for instance, ever exposed to such material? Uh, because our knee-jerk reaction is as parents, is that we become really, because we become, we, we become scared. So we often then tend to either um, react in a harsh way. We want to reprimand the child or whatever. And then obviously that means that that child is worried that they will get in trouble. So they don't want to come and talk mm, to the parents. Yeah. So kind of saying, you're not allowed to have that laptop anymore, or you know, you're, uh, you, you'll be punished for a week or whatever. I think that reaction means that children are just, they don't want to talk to parents anymore. So it's important that parents know how they're going to manage if they're in that situation. And none of us should ever feel that, you know, it's, I, I am above and beyond that. So I think education and from parents to be proactive and simple things like making sure that from a young age, and this is obviously I'm talking about children who are not, not at that age where they're exposed. Obviously, there are different strategies when we talk about um, people who are addicted and what do we do in terms of recovery and management in that sense. Uh, but for I think there's a lot that parents can do and they should do, definitely. So, so Sister Abida, oftentimes, um, whenever this question is asked, the answer is always, 
we need education and we need to have these conversations with our children. But the follow-up question always is, is how, what do those conversations look like? Yeah, you're right. You're right. And like I said, the thing is that when people say, okay, what is the appropriate age to have that conversation? And like I said, it's never too early. It's never too late. So education around when we talk about, because this starts with sex education and relationship education. That's what we're talking about, really. So, they, so in terms of making sure that our children understand, um, especially spiritual and Islamic boundaries as to what are those boundaries and how do we keep those boundaries? Because oftentimes children don't even know that. Um, and the basic things, and you might be surprised that sometimes people don't even understand in terms of the basic concept of how, what is permissible, what's not permissible. And, and things like, because young children, as they grow older, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put feelings and emotions. Um, children might want to, you know, it's not a big deal that you have a, cr a crush on somebody, you like somebody, those feelings and emotions are normal. It's how do you manage those? And what, what, what is the appropriate way of expressing those feelings? So that, that's in terms of children understanding, because don't forget when they expose for a young child, a lot of this is about curiosity as well. Mm. You know, they're just interested in what's happening because that's something that they don't know or they don't understand. So the, the, these conversations are, so what I say normally to people is that if you're, if you're discussing sex education, the sensible approach is to make it quite clinical and, not, and work on yourself that we're not being really anxious ourselves. So if you're using clinical terms, you know, medical terms, it's so easy to impart that sensible knowledge in the way that we want rather than leaving everything to the school or the playground. Because oftentimes parents make a choice that they don't want their children to, uh, to, to attend these lessons. But then obviously the children who attend these lessons, next day they would give whatever information they want. So I would say that it's also about the, the type of relationship we have with our children. So there should be that openness where children are willing to, to listen to the parents and parents are also comfortable talking to their children. Mm, yes, I think that's a good point. And the point that you mentioned that if you take your children outside of those programs, you know, for me, I, for this topic, it's always either you're gonna teach your children or somebody else will. And in today's age, you don't want somebody else teaching them. And when I mean somebody 100%. else, I mean society at large. Um, because, you know, the zeitgeist of today, I mean, when we do speak, there are certain people in this, in our societies who don't have a problem with this at all and are encouraging people to actually go out and do, um, uh, and engage in pornography. So it's very, it's very important that we are the ones that who are teaching our children, especially in today's age of gender and sexuality, we want to be the ones. Um, but for me, Sister Abida, I find that there is a cheat code to all of this. There is, there, there is something that we can use that Allah has given us that can make all of our addiction problems go easily or somewhat easier. And that is the month of Ramadan. And what's, what's very interesting is our social scientists have agreed that if you want to get rid of a habit, you need to abstain from it from 30 to 40 days, um, which is very coincidental. But I, I know brothers personally who have really struggled with this problem. And when the month of Ramadan came, they made a promise with themselves that they were going to abstain for 30 days. And after the 30 days, 
they never went back to it ever again. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Also, and I, I, Alhamdulillah, I, I do have a lot of experience, a lot of testimonies about what I'm about to say next is there are a lot of Muslim males who set out a goal in Ramadan to get rid of this addiction. But the vast majority of them always fail. They get to mm -hmm. around the 10th day or so and they fail. So what, what advice could you give to people? Um, again, males and females for the month of Ramadan, how they can properly use this month to get rid of this addiction? I think the most important thing is that this is not an issue. I mean, subhanAllah, if Allah wills, anything can happen. So I'm really pleased and proud uh, for, the, for, for the brothers who are, and sisters who can just make the intention and then it works for them, subhanAllah. You're absolutely right that we, we, what I, we normally say in our programs, we say nine weeks are what we need is for the neural pathway to change, right? So that it coincides with 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 our Islamic advice, subhanAllah. Now, if we are taking away something, so if we're taking away something, like that, that's a principle we use for smoking as well, right? So people, when they give up smoking, some people can just go cold turkey and they, they don't smoke. But for most people, it's really hard because when you are triggered, when you're stressed, because don't forget for a lot of people, this is also a stress-releasing response. Mm. So whenever the trigger happens, and it's important that the education about this whole thing is that you need to understand what are your triggers. So for some people, stress is their trigger. For some people, boredom is a trigger. For some people, accessibility is a trigger. So some some people, uh, you know, going going to a gym might be a trigger. For some people, watching something just remotely uh, that is a, a bit explicit might be a trigger. So understanding our own triggers is very, very important. And then having some, uh, some barriers in between. So like I said, if we're taking something away, so if we're saying you're not allowed to have dopamine through pornography anymore, then what are we going to do to replace that? So mm. obviously people need some mood stabilizers, right? To feel okay. So uh, what we no normally encourage, and especially in Ramadan as well, is to plan ahead. So things like, subhanAllah, you know, simple things like ma making sure that there is some form of um, connection with the nature. So whether it's half an hour of walk just before uh, uh, iftar, you know, that, that could be a really good cop coping strategy because that half an hour walk um, around nature is going to calm us down because we need the mood to be stable, right? Mm -hmm. um, then also kind of kind of checking the, the type of relationships we have. So we're making sure that before Ramadan starts, we make a renewed intention that we don't want to hold negativity and grudges, whether it's with our siblings, whether it's our spouses, neighbors, friends, whatever, you know, any accumulated negativity, any emotional baggage, Ramadan is a really good time to let go of that because if we have emotional baggage, then we would be triggered a lot. You know, people irritate us. And the minute that irritation happens because relapse is not suddenly you just, you relapse. it doesn't happen like that. So there are three stages to relapse. So it's, first we say it's mental, then emotional, then actually people act out and then it's the physical relapse. So understanding our own triggers, like I said, is very, very important. So making sure that we have some form of structure. So making that intention that, you know, between our salah, how are we going to look after ourselves? So even little things about self-care is so important. And we use that as a good strategy, that self-care, like in making sure that in Sahur, we're drinking enough water. So we're keeping hydrated because when we're not hydrated, 
that can also affect our mood. And when the mood is low, don't forget, people are trying to uplift their moods. The dopamine surge is the mood stabilizer. People want to feel okay. They want to just forget about the other stuff and they just want to, whether it's an hour, two hours, three hours when they're watching pornography, right? So making sure that there are lots of scaffolding things that people are adopting um, to, um, to, to counter that. Now, one of the acronyms that we use, which is a very simple tool, and I think it would benefit people is uh, the acronym called RUN. So RUN basically stands for, R is for remove yourself. So the minute you recognize that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start something, now I'm feeling triggered, so you remove yourself. The second thing is U, which stands for undistort your thinking. Because when we are think when our thinking is distorted, what we're telling ourselves is, I'm just going to do it for a few minutes. You know, I'm just going to be here for five minutes or whatever, and then I'll go. I'm just browsing. I'm not going to go deeper into anything. So undistort our thinking. So no, this is a distortion. Actually, I know if I go in, I'm, I won't be able to stop. And N stands for never forget what you might lose, right? So the, th the thing is that every single addict knows once they've watched pornography, an hour, five minutes, 10 minutes, two hours, straight afterwards, there is that immense sense of guilt and shame. So knowing that, you know, never, or, or if there's a disclosure, if the wife finds out, whatever. So run is a really good acronym. And run, we also take run from Yusuf al-Islam's story. You know, when oh, uh, yes. Yusuf al-Islam ran from that situation and he knew that he had, he had to run from there. That's when, you know, the, the wife's uh, wife, uh, or, uh, Amir's wife, obviously, she wanted to grab him from the back, right? So that's where run comes from. Um, and another tool is that we, we, the whole concept of lowering our gaze. It's so important that we make intention that, you know, detox from uh, social media, detox from, and we all can do with the detox, right? And Ramadan is a really good time to say, you know, 30 days, don't want to be on any social media. And social media, actually, and some of people that I work with, they make a firm commitment. And one of my um, kind of conditions to start working with people is that you, you can't have your smartphone. So people often buy those small, remember those small Nokia phones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the small ones. And you can just play snake or something. So, and that's the, that's the commitment that, you know, you're not going to be on a smartphone because, and, and so it's, it's about being, uh, putting those um, uh, structures in and they often are quite helpful. So those are some of my suggestions. Hmm. Subhanallah, you, you mentioned so many beautiful things. Uh, my favorite of them being the, 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 mentioning the story of Yusuf alayhi salam. Um, and sometimes, you know, we tend to forget that um, all of the answers that we're looking for are in the Quran, in these stories. Um, uh -huh. So, uh, you know, we, I, I did a podcast uh, on Bitcoin and we were talking about inflation. And I said, in the story of Yusuf alayhi salam, there's inflation as well when he goes to Egypt. So you begin to find uh -huh. these, the, the, uh, the lessons in these stories. Um, but another thing I loved is this, this, this idea of triggers. Um, and in my experience, the triggers for most people is when they're on their phone or whether they're on their laptop and they see something provocative and immediately that sends a trigger to their brain that they should go watch pornography, whether that's from a TV show or a movie, whether that's from a music video uh, or the lyrics in a music video, uh, I mean, uh, in a song because of how uh, uh, over-sexualized it's become, or most importantly on Instagram, 
um, Instagram, especially the, the, the search feature, immediately they will show you everything. And I've had brothers testify to me that once they, once they saw a picture like that, which they didn't even intend to come across, but once it came across them, immediately that triggered occurred and they couldn't control yeah. themselves. Absolutely. So these, Absolutely. Are, these are all remarkable points which you just mentioned, sister. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. And, and a few other suggestions that I was thinking, Ahmed, one of the things is that, and it's such a simple thing, and again, it coincides beautifully with our faith, subhanAllah, that when the trigger happens, we immediately need to do something. So one of the things that we recommend is cold water splashes. And to my Muslim um, clients, I always say, cold water wudu. Because cold water, uh, you know, hydrotherapy, subhanAllah, is known to uh, uplift our mood. So now there was a research done where somebody was on antidepressants, for instance, and they were they were um, swimming in cold water every morning. And within weeks, they came off their antidepressants. So, and we need to understand that water in itself has such beautiful medicinal qualities. But for us, um, cold water wudu is one of uh, the other uh, tips that I give people. The minute they feel that trigger, and I think most people who are addicted, they would say that physiologically there's a uneasiness. So they know that it's, you know, they're heading towards that. So um, that relationship with water, subhanAllah, it creates a barrier and a buffer, definitely. SubhanAllah, I never thought, you know, I, I do that sometimes just when I need to study to wake myself up. Um, but, but to see that it also works for this um, is, is pretty remarkable because, again, this is something which is accessible to everyone. Um, everybody has cold water. So it's something, it's something practical that they can do as well. I know I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. I, I know one brother who told me uh, one, of, one of the solutions he used is immediately when the thought would come, and this is, this is similar to your idea of run, he would go on a physical run. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Because and, and that's again, because when you're running, actually, what you're doing is you're you're giving yourself some happy hormones, whether it's serotonin, uh, and we need that because we, you need to uplift yourself. And running definitely, and the first I encourage that definitely that you physically run as well. Mm -hmm. It distracts you because what we need, if you think about it, what are we creating? We need a barrier. We need to, your your thinking to your mind to come out of that state that you're not. You, you're not going to go go down uh, the route of addiction. So whatever that is, so whether it's cold water splashes, whether it's running, one of the techniques we use is um, smelling salts, which is also very, very effective. And you buy them through, in England, we can access them to Amazon or ph pharmacies. So strong smelling salts. And the minute you smell that, it also jolts your cognition. You think, you know, what am I thinking? What am I going to do now? I don't want to do that. <laughs> so these are little interventions. So my, cl my clients would make sure they have one in the car, you know, one in their bathroom closet, one by their bedroom. So, and these are all little tips that people use um, to make sure that they're on track uh, to uh, mm -hmm. stay so sober, basically, and they don't relapse. Exactly. And you, you know what I love about something like cold water or these smelling salts is that when the person has the trigger, there's only a couple seconds before they're going to make their decision. Absolutely. And those couple seconds are going to define what's going to happen next. So if in those seconds, they can quickly put cold water on them or they can uh, smell these salts, um, it, it, it would deter them from it. Um, Inshallah. Inshallah. The, the last Inshallah. thing I wanted to ask you 
is it's uh, it's very difficult for us to educate all the parents on a topic like this. Um, mm -hmm. We can definitely reach many of them, but not all. However, what we can do is we can reach the educational institutions in which their children are going towards. So the many Muslim schools that are here, what advice can you offer to um, these institutions on how they can deal with, for example, children that are in elementary school? What advice can you give them? Because they do offer sex ed edu education, but there isn't necessarily a, you know, a specific topic related to pornography. So what, what would be some of your uh, advice to them? So I, th I think, again, with schools, the important thing is that teachers um, and mentors and pastoral care should be okay about opening these conversations. Because, it, I mean, I, I often am asked to come and speak to you, to our halakas, you know, whether, whether it's a girl's halakha, whatever. And when you talk about these topics, you realize that how hungry are young people to hear what adults have to say to them. Because the fact that they, like you said, you know, it's almost a mandatory thing, an expected thing that you know, young people would be exposed or they would know somebody who's struggling or, do you understand? So it's their right. norm. And it almost seems like a disconnect between the older generation and the younger generation. So when, when the teachers or the mentors are discussing this and saying, you know, today we're going to talk about this in one of our lessons, um, and just see what children have to say and, and give them some tools or ideas or whatever. And I think that communication is so important. And that's the key thing because the reality is that we have to destigmatize this thing because in my experience, shame is the thing that shackles people the most because that's where shaitan keeps people. You know, you're just beyond redemption or Allah is never going to forgive you or whatever. But once we recognize, and that's the key principle, isn't it? That we we hate the sin, not the sinner. So mm -hmm. once we recognize, once we once we explain to children, look, you know, if you're struggling, there's help out there. You know, just come and talk to somebody. And because it's a mental health issue, at the end of the day, pornography addiction is like any other addiction, and all addictions are mental health issues. We don't really see this as a as a as a moral issue or a spiritual issue. So I think that would be the key thing that teachers are also like we would, um, teachers often go for um, their, uh, you know, the inset days with this training. So I think especially our weekends, our faith school should definitely invest in educating the teachers as to how should they then work with the, with the children. So, I, and, and I think each teacher, whether it's not just the teachers, the, the community leaders, the uh, imams, you know, there, there's so much that we still need to do in terms of giving them the tools so they can actually, because they're the ones who, who sing these people every day, isn't it? The bulk of people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And um, I think, you know, your, your, your solution of communication and um, beginning discussions on these is perhaps the most important. And then teaching our teachers, um, pun not intended. <laughs> Um, uh, about about how to navigate and our imams as well, how to navigate uh, when when issues like these occur, and that the more openly we talk about it, the more openly people will be willing to um, uh, discuss their problems with them. So, um, on a closing note, Sister Abida, to all the people that are watching this that are struggling with this addiction, what would you say to them? So. First of all, I, I would like to say that um, don't suffer in silence because when we suffer in silence, our, 
our close companions is, is the shaitan. And what shaitan does is he makes us constantly hopeless. And obviously hopelessness in, as Muslims, we can't be hopeless because Allah SWT has promised that he's not going to test us beyond our capacity. So there's help out there. And the minute we start accessing help, we realize that you know it's, it's not so hard. But obviously when we're struggling alone, everything seems like a mammoth task, right? Hmm. Um, but the recovery, subhanAllah, is wholesome. So when people work towards coming out of their addiction, they become better people because holistically it's a lifestyle change. So weeding out all sorts of things, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our relationships, spiritual relationship, all sorts of things. So subhanAllah, you know, the work that we do is transformational. So my, I would encourage everybody who's struggling to, to just seek out help. And it doesn't have to be faith-based all the time because I think sometimes people feel that, you know, if we go to a non-Muslim, we won't get the help that um, I need. But in my experience, subhanAllah, so I think seek any help. If it's from a, from a faith-based perspective, excellent. But if it, even if it's not from a faith-based uh, perspective, still seek help don't suffer in silence mm, exactly and um you know i couldn't have put it better but the last thing that i will say is from from my anecdotal experience with many of these brothers is that this is not an easy task um and don't think that you're just it's, you're just going to one day decide not to do it after years of engaging in it and think it's going to end right this is this is this is a this is a struggle so with that, I would like to conclude. Thank you, Sister Abida, for joining us for this very important conversation. And inshallah, this can be the first of many that we can have with our parents, with our siblings, our peers, and our educational institutions. And hopefully, inshallah, we can see that we can see this disease start to become reduced. So thank you, inshallah, Sister Abida. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.